traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. By now, so far along into Season 3 of The Twilight Zone, we've seen many examples of the show using various tools to illustrate its message. Shows about aliens that aren't really about aliens. Episodes about robots, but they're not really talking about robots. Anybody with the most rudimentary knowledge of The Twilight Zone knows that Sailing was using the show to illustrate various aspects of humanity, conflicts, universal aspects of human suffering, things we go through in our day-to-day lives that bond us these aspects of the human condition. But The Twilight Zone isn't the only show to do this. You know, take for example the original series of Star Trek and the episode Let That Be your last battlefield. And the episode showed conflict between two aliens from the planet Sharon. One of the aliens was black on one side and white on the other, and his enemy was black on the opposite side and white on the other. Now that's probably quite an on-the-nose example, you know, you don't have to be a genius to figure out what Gene Roddenberry was going for there. But using these devices gives the writer a place to explore the issues without commenting directly on actual world events, naming actual people and situations, but still being able to say something about them. So one storytelling device that writers have used for literally centuries is the size of a character in relation to another where a human or humans encounter a being that is either much larger or much smaller. And if the writer so feels, then the way they interact is usually telling us something about ourselves. One of the most famous examples of this is the book Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, where Gulliver not only encounters little people, but giants as well. Now admittedly it's been too long since I've read that book to really recall anything beyond the basics, but as I was reading up on it I discovered that people's interpretation of it vary to quite a degree. And this quote that I found jumped out at me in particular because it seems quite relevant when we consider tonight's Twilight Zone. So talking about Gulliver's Travels, the quote goes, a possible reason for the book's classic status is that it can be seen as many things to many different people. Broadly, the book has three themes, a satirical view of the state of European government and of petty differences between religions. Two, an inquiry into whether men are inherently corrupt or whether they become corrupted. And three, a restatement of the older Ancients versus Moderns controversy previously addressed by Swift in the Battle of the Books. So keep these in mind, maybe the first two especially because they may become relevant later on. Tonight we touch down inside the canyon on an alien planet where we meet two astronauts who have touched down there too. Commander William Fletcher, serious, stoic and starting to run low on patience with his co-pilot Peter Craig, surly, sarcastic, and disrespectful of rank. You sure picked a nice place to sit down, Fletcher. The floor of a canyon. I took you to the first mass of land that loomed up. And just for the record, Mr. Craig, I didn't pepper the nose of that vehicle with meteor holes. I also didn't foul up those rocket boosters. That's something you can chalk up to nature. All right, all right. It just strikes me as kind of a deadhead place to sit down. On the floor of a canyon. So, as the tensions run high, let's cast our gaze low so we can try to catch a glimpse of the little people. 
The time is the space age. The place is a barren landscape of a rock-walled canyon that lies millions of miles from the planet Earth. The cast of characters, you've met them. William Fletcher, commander of the spaceship, his co-pilot, Peter Craig. The other characters who inhabit this place you may never see, but they're there, as these two gentlemen will soon find out, because they're about to partake in a little exploration into that gray shaded area in space and time that's known as the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on March 30th, 1962, written by Rod Serling and directed by William F. Claxton. So this is three of four Twilight Zones for William Claxton, and what a diverse bunch they are. First of all, there's the season one episode, Richard Matheson's The Last Flight, and then there's Charles Beaumont's The Jungle, and next time round is I Sing the Body Electric. There's a nice eerie little moment prior to Rod Serling's opening narration where Craig can hear the low muttering of the little people and they realise they're not alone. Then we get one of those slightly awkward cut whip pans to Rod Serling standing in the canyon. And it's pretty standard stuff, you know. And there's a couple of nice touches. I like the way he introduces it, you know, the cast of characters, you've met them, and so on. So it's all good. But I'm going to backtrack a little again to an exchange that happened prior to the opening narration. That goes like this. Beyond us getting out of here, let's say this is the end of the line. Now, how would you sweeten the pot? A sirloin steak, a blonde, what? How about mumbly peg, Fletcher? Or maybe 20 questions? Look, try me after dinner. I may feel up to charades. Point of interest is all. I'm just interested in what makes you tick. Or maybe it's what makes you tick so loudly. What do you hunger for most, Craig? Try this one, Fletch. I'd like a whole lot of people at my elbow. The more, the merrier. The louder, the better. And I'd like Yankee Stadium right alongside. But I'd like them on my terms. That's what I'm getting at. What are your terms? I'd like to be the number one straw boss. So quite early on, even before Rod Serling has uttered a word, we see that the character of Craig has delusions of grandeur, a god complex. He wants to be a leader, but more than just a leader, a ruler. You know, call it what you will. And while I do think there are a few nice Serling bits of dialogue here, like when Fletcher says, what makes you tick so loudly? I suppose when we consider the story as a whole, All of this stuff is quite on the nose and maybe a little clearly telegraphed for what's to come later. Craig isn't a guy who comes to the planet and gets seduced by the possibility of power over the little people. He comes as a fully formed megalomaniac. So everything does feel a little bit convenient maybe, but we'll keep an eye on that as we go. Now, as you will notice, this is very much a contained episode in terms of location because the whole thing was filmed on stage five at MGM Studios. And a lot of the props and costumes are taken from existing productions too. Fletcher and Craig's uniforms had already been used for the astronauts in the season one episode, The Lonely. Now, I don't usually go in for quoting production costs, but just out of interest because it seems that this episode is what we would term maybe a bottle episode if it was a regular show. You know, in Star Trek, they would often do it where they would have a 200 episode with a couple of characters in one location, and it was a way of saving a bit of money. And this seems to be a Twilight Zone version of that. So this episode, which is a full-on science fiction episode with an alien planet, a spaceship and some special effects, cost $43,500. Whereas the last episode, Person or Persons Unknown, which was Earth-based with no aliens, no spaceships, and everything was shot with contemporary clothing and sets and so on, the cost of that one was $48,500 
So it just shows you what you can achieve with one set and a few costumes. You go from every day to science fiction for $5,000 less. So as our two astronauts go about their business, Fletcher starts to have some suspicions about Craig. It's hot, isn't it? Possible. You some kind of a camel, Craig? What do you mean? It just occurs to me I haven't seen you take any water. <laughs> well, uh, I'm a whiskey man myself, hadn't you noticed? Uh-uh. You're gonna have to do better than that. All right, what gives, Craig? Say again? Your ears don't lap. Your water hasn't been touched in 24 hours. So as Fletcher tries to shake the truth out of Craig, let's meet the commander himself, Claude Akins. He comes to us with some great Twilight Zone credentials. After playing one of the more prominent parts, that of Steve Brand, in The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. His IMDB bio describes him as the broad-shouldered and beefy Claude Akins, with wavy black hair and a booming voice. Now, he was born in 1926 and served in World War II, and then when he came back, he began his acting career, first appearing on camera in the 1953 film From Here to Eternity. And from then on, he truly became one of our hard-working actors of the day with a massive 231 credits to his name, and most notable for me is his turn as General Aldo in Battle for the Planet of the Apes. Now, with that many credits to his name, perhaps there are a couple of signature roles in there, but I'm not too sure this time, because he did once say, I feel like an outsider in a business that I've been part of for 37 years. For some reason, Hollywood's mainstream has eluded me. So he did feel that he was a little bit typecast as a heavy or a tough guy and was probably quite appreciative of these Twilight Zone roles where, where that really wasn't the point of his characters. And in this episode, you know, he's fine. He's not doing anything particularly different from his performance in Maple Street. He just seems to be a solid, dependable actor who can give you a solid performance. And he's quite typical of a lot of the characterizations of astronauts in this time in science fiction shows when space travel was in its infancy. Because the shows at the time would often characterize astronauts more like regular working guys, you know, who would be just as much at home under the hood of a car as they would piloting a spaceship. Which is something I've always quite enjoyed about 50s and 60s science fiction. So let's leave old Beefy Akins there for a moment and get back to the planet because he's about to discover what Craig is up to. You know, I underrated you, mister. I knew you were a grousing malcontent, but I didn't know you were a cheat. It's just a variety of liking. You don't mind if I look at it through the magnifier, do you? Or have you done that already? Trees. Yes, that's what they are. Trees. Oh. Might as well go the whole route now. They were alongside of a stream. It runs about a hundred feet. It's about two and a half inches wide. If you think that's something. So now Craig's secret is revealed. The tiny cat is out of the tiny bag and Craig shows Fletcher something else, a small truck that sits in the palm of his hand. And this shot of the truck in Craig's hand and a later shot of Craig himself were achieved by filming them on a black background and then having that superimposed over an image. I think we can split this episode up into two halves and the turning point is where Fletcher is first shown the little people's town by Craig and it's here that we're treated to one of several maybe a little dodgy special effects in this episode where Fletcher points to an aerial photograph of a town saying it's the little people's town but you know what can you do it's the time they were in it's the tools they have you know 
their reach exceeded their grasp sometimes, their imaginations were bigger than the tools they had. And in science fiction, I guess we always want their imaginations to be continually reaching where maybe the effects are always trying to catch up. So we can't criticise them too much for the effects that we're seeing here. And I do wonder whether it is the level of effects at that time that led them to not actually showing the little people on screen. I can't find any confirmation of whether that is the case, but I think it works quite well that we don't see them. It creates this strange situation where, where there's a presence that's pretty much created by what the actors say and how they react to things and our own imaginations. All my life I've wanted to sit in front of the wagon and hold the reins. Well, what do you think I've got here now? A whole race of little people who look up to me like a giant out of the sky. They're scared, Fletch. Petrified. And so they do what they're told. Because this giant is like some avenging angel to them. Graduated Fletcher. I'm a slob with a slide rule. Now I won't go through the second half of the episode beat by beat because we've pretty much heard all we need to know in that clip. Craig sees this as an opportunity to realise his dream of being in the driving seat and becoming a god. And this kind of links in with an aspect of the show that I feel struggles a little bit. You know these characters are pretty thin. One is a hard working and decent chap. The other is a sneaky megalomaniac. So that's okay, no problem, you know, it's convenient, but they only have 25 minutes, so we'll go with it. But then poor Joe Maros has to carry this progression of his character from regular guy with ideas above his station to crazed lunatic who thinks himself a god in literally the space of a couple of monologues. And I know it's been building a bit in the background, but unfortunately I think the escalation is maybe a bit too quick. Perhaps if they let the part where he encounters the little people and he's saying, hey, isn't this great? You know, they're showing me where to get the best stuff. They're doing this for me. They're doing that for me. You know, if they'd have let that ride for a couple of minutes before bringing on the crazed God stuff, it wouldn't have been such a jump. But then again, I even think that aspect of it has problems too. The aspect where Craig is somehow being saved by the little people. I do think it creates a good sense of mystery not seeing them, but it's hard to fathom exactly what they can do for Craig that he can't do for himself. They're so small that them showing him where the edible stuff is seems kind of pointless, you know, he could just turn his head a couple of times and see pretty much the entirety of their civilization. He doesn't need them to show him anything. And they're so small that if there is anything good out of shot, like around the back of one of the rocks, it wouldn't take much for him to have a wander around for a couple of minutes and find it himself. So while the episode is trying to sell us on these people worshipping him, worshipping him out of fear and providing for him, being provided for by these little people would probably be more effort than it was rewarding. You know, if I'm sitting on the couch with a hundred little people at my beck and call, but it still takes them half an hour to carry me a beer from the fridge, I'm probably going to get up and get that beer myself. But of course, I realise that the point here is, is not so much what they do for them, but more the power he exerts over them that excites Craig. But if that's what we're going with, I think it becomes problematic when we see that Joe Maros has to try and convey all of that in his performance that sadly starts to veer into overacting. Because we don't have any other perspectives, we don't have the little people's perspectives. We don't have them showing us this big violent god from their point of view, which might actually be a little less grandiose from ours. So it's up to him to try and sell it, which is tough. So the situation is escalating, 
But then we're just constantly reminded that it's two guys stood around a little trickle of water and some shapes on the ground. I'm sorry. I'm truly sorry. Please forgive us. Forgive us, please. It's okay, Fletcher. We forgive you, but I'm not sure we can forgive Joe for his acting. So Fletcher gets the rocket ship up and running again, but when he goes to find Craig, he finds him in a form that he wasn't quite expecting. And as we soon find out, in order to appease Craig, the little people have built a statue of him. There is a kind of slightly chilling aspect to this scene where we see the statue of Craig. It's a symbol of the power he has over these little people and the fear that they have of him. So I do enjoy this aspect quite a bit. Quite why they've chosen to portray him with his helmet on, I don't know because he hasn't really been wearing it in the episode so far. So it's anyone's guess. Maybe they just had trouble doing hair. So our story gets to the point where Fletcher has repaired the ship, but Craig has decided to stay and rule over the little people. Oh, my little friends, we've got a lot of plans to make. <laughs> a lot of projects to work out. Much work. A whole lot of work. <laughs> That's a reminder, little friend. There must be discipline here. Discipline above all. So while Craig rolls around on the floor, let's meet the man who has the unenviable task of selling this scene to us. Peter Craig is played by Joe Maros, and this is the second time he's found himself boarding a spaceship in the Twilight Zone because he was in the episode Third from the Sun and he would dip in and out of science fiction every now and again, with appearances in shows like The Outer Limits and The Time Tunnel. But to be honest, he did a bit of everything, and he too was a hard-working actor of the day, but with only half the credits of his co-star, with a respectable 121. And there's not a huge amount of trivia on him, he just seemed to tick over in television throughout the 50s right up to the 80s. And I do think Maros is a decent enough actor, but he does have this really difficult task of selling the progression of Craig's inbuilt megalomania into full-blown madness. And I don't really blame him for this coming off as a bit hokey. I just don't think that progression is really there on paper, never mind in performance. Because when Fletcher puts the choice right in front of us like that, either get on the ship and go home, or stand there and be worshipped by people the size of ants, whose civilization seems to be about the size of a large puddle, I think I'd be getting back on the ship. But not Craig, he just seems to go even more mad with power. It does seem pointless for Craig to stay there and be saved by these little people, and I do know that the point is that Craig is drunk on power, and it's not necessarily about what they can do for him, but it's still a tough sell. So in the end, had he not met the fate that we'll see in a moment, he just would have been a guy standing on a more or less deserted planet next to a puddle. But his godlike status is short-lived because there's always a bigger fish. Go away! You can't stay here! Go away! Say, do you suppose there are any more of them down there? I don't know. What's the difference? We're not here exploring. We're here making repairs. Come on. Come on. Let's get out of here. So as Craig stands ready to rule over his new domain, he's approached by two giants, one of whom picks him up and kills him. And in the Twilight Zone companion, Buck Houghton said, 
For the final shot we were having a hell of a time because scale is very hard to achieve. And what we did was take a shot that had been made for I shot an arrow into the air. We were in Death Valley and because the fellow in search of where the hell they were decided to go over that mountain and someone said, geez we can't get over that. We had a point of view shot straight up to the mountains, very tall, very ominous, shot quite close to the foot of it. I recall a painting I once ran across, I forget by whom, a fairly famous painter of former times, that posed a genie who was looming up over mountains that gave him scale. So what we did was take an upshot of the two astronauts and mattered this shot that we had of the mountains over it so that they looked like they were standing over something that had some scale. So the eagle-eyed will notice that these two giant spacemen are wearing uniforms from Forbidden Planet. But after the first rough cut was viewed, it turns out that there needed to be some revisions. Now the original two astronauts were called Don Rhodes and Michael Ford, but it turns out that when these revisions were to be done, only Michael Ford was available, so Robert Eaton took the place of Don Rhodes. You know, I recently revisited A Passage for Trumpet, which is an episode that is literally a million miles from this one in terms of its location, its scope, its subject matter. But there is a level of sophistication in A Passage for Trumpet that means when you go from that to the little people, there is a kind of whiplash that goes with it. Now of course, one of the joys of the Twilight Zone is that you can go from one thing to another. They'll differ in tone, message and execution. But what viewing the two so close together highlighted for me is that the little people does seem so very simplistic. But that's not to say there aren't things to be mined from it. So what is it all about? Well at its most basic level you could say that it's a simple case of treating others the same way that you would want to be treated, because someday it might be you who is on the receiving end of what you're dishing out. So in this case, the giants may not have the same god complex that Craig has, but the one who picks him up does have very little regard for his being a living, breathing creature and just kills him. So while it does seem to be very simplistic, it is prime Twilight Zone in a way, and it is quite malleable in terms of its message. So if we think back to that comment I read at the beginning about Gulliver's Travels, where one commentator said that it could be seen as many things to many different people, I think maybe we have the same situation here. There are several interpretations you could graft on to the little people and have them be quite valid. First of all, like I said, there is that basic message of treating people the way you would want to be treated. So if you are a Christian, then from what I gather, there are probably multiple Bible quotes that relay this kind of message. You know, Matthew 7:12. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. So for some people that might be what they take from the little people. But sticking with the religious aspect, you could look at it in terms of religions of fear. Craig tries to keep his people in line with fear rather than kindness. You could say it's about bullying, you know, which again comes back to treating others how you would want to be treated. You could be a bully, but there's always going to be a bigger bully. You could also look at the power aspect, you know, power corrupting someone further, someone who is already of weak character, getting to a position where he's in a seat of power, and then he becomes this maniacal power-crazed person. You know, they're just a few ideas, but I think you could probably sit and graft a lot of different meanings onto the little people if you were so inclined. And this is, of course, why Rod Serling started to do The Twilight Zone. Maybe networks and censors would have stopped him telling, for example, a story about a power-hungry politician using their position for personal gain, but then finding the tables turned when, when another more powerful candidate comes along. But Serling can change political power 
to physical size and set it in outer space and tell that story. Now that's not to say I think The Little People is about politics, I'm just using that as an example. It can be pretty much whatever you want it to be, and that is the whole ethos of The Twilight Zone, hiding these things in plain sight. But I think where it falls down for me is in the execution. Craig and Fletcher's characters are who they need to be to tell that story, but that's pretty much it. They are quite two-dimensional, and the actors Maros and Aikens have a lot of weight on their shoulders in the telling. It's just one location with a couple of aspects to it, and they need to fill that with their performance. Maros in particular then has to convey his ascension to this man who thinks himself a god, and that's not easy to do. But while it is quite easy to pick apart some aspects of the little people, in another sense I kind of appreciate its simplicity. It would be a good one to show a young child as a springboard to other conversations. It does have that very simple fable-like quality to it, and fables did tend to be quite simple with characters who personified what the story needed them to be, and then they did something that would cause them to have to face what they've done, which would illustrate the moral of that story. So it is a kind of space-age fable, you know, not every Twilight Zone needs to have the sophistication of something like A Passage for Trumpet or The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. So I wouldn't call The Little People top-tier Twilight Zone, and I'm not even sure it would stand firmly on the middle tier for me, but that's not to say it's a write-off. There are still some important lessons to be learned from The Little People, and its format is so malleable that you could probably decide which lesson you want to take from it. The case of navigator Peter Craig, a victim of a delusion. In this case, the dream dies a little harder than the man. A small exercise in space psychology that you can try on for size in the Twilight Zone. So there we go, The Little People, another Twilight Zone podcast under our belt. Now before we move on to listener emails, I just want to mention briefly, of course I put out that short episode about being nominated for the Rondo Awards. Now, as I said in that, you know, the reason I decided to kind of mention it, I had a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons was it is the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone and I just thought, you know, what beautiful time. And, and I said that it would be nice to go to Binghamton at the end of the year in October on the 60th anniversary with that award and be able to say, look, you know, this, this is what the listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast have done uh, because they love the Twilight Zone so much, you know. They have mobilized as they have done so many times before and got this award for the Twilight Zone. And then I thought to myself, you know, I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast in Binghamton. And if they voted for us, then I can thank them personally. But obviously because of geography, economics, you know, whatever reason, not everyone who listens to the Twilight Zone podcast is going to be able to go. So how can I thank those people in a unique way? So what I've decided to do is this. If the Twilight Zone podcast wins the Rondo this year in the 60th anniversary of the Twilight Zone, I will record a thank you message from Binghamton. I will choose a nice location there, you know, maybe the carousel, something like that. I'll check it out when I get there and we will choose a nice place to do it. Then I will record a thank you video to you, the listeners to the Twilight Zone podcast, as a way of not only saying thank you, but giving a glimpse of Binghamton and bringing those people into Binghamton for the 60th anniversary who might not be able to go there. So this isn't going to be one of those videos that I often do on Patreon where I'm, you know, unboxing something or showing something where I don't show my face. This is going to be me stood in Binghamton thanking you for voting for the Twilight Zone podcast and hopefully making you a part of those 60th anniversary celebrations. So it's not going to be anything spectacular, but I'll try and choose a nice spot. 
if there's some other friends of the show there who want to be around. You know, I don't know. But what I will say is this. If we win, then I will make that video to say thank you to you. But we can't rest on our laurels. Although we won last year, it's a very competitive kind of category. So every vote is going to count. So if you can just take a few minutes to do it, then maybe we'll have the chance to do that. And to vote, this is what you need to do. If you want to just keep it simple, then go to the twilightzonepodcast.com slash rondo. That's R-O-N-D-O. And the simple instructions there on how to vote in the rondos. And all you need to do is send an email to taraco, that's T-A-R-A-C-O, at AOL.com. And in the email, put your name so they know that it's not someone just duplicating votes. And put, please cast my vote for the Twilight Zone podcast at thetwilightzonepodcast.com in category 20, best multimedia site. And that's all you need to do. It's as easy as that. Or, if you want to check out some of the other categories and vote for other things, you can do that too. And to do that, go to rondoaward.com and all the nominees are there. So we're in section 20. There is another Twilight Zone podcast there, Craig Beam's show, which is also a great show. But if you want to vote for ours, it's the one that's second from bottom of the list in section 20. So there you go. If we mobilise and get this one, then maybe we can all be in Binghamton in some small way for the 60th anniversary celebrations. So let's have a listen to some feedback in Submitted for your approval. Okay, only a couple of emails this month. First is from a really good friend of the show, Robert Galise, and he says, I've just finished watching The Little People and thought I would give you a quick review. To me, it comes across as a bottle episode in which there is one set and a few actors. And in this case, there are only two except for the last minute. I don't mean that as a derogatory term, just something that struck me when watching it. There is minimum action and marginal special effects. The shots of the small town are so clearly photos that I almost laughed, but I reminded myself that it was the 1960s and there really weren't any other options on a limited budget. The high-pitched voices and the last scene where they topple the statue were almost comical. However, I do appreciate that they didn't show the little people at all. If they had shown tiny people running around like ants, that would have likely pushed this episode into parody. But making them unseen throughout kept an air of mystery and unease that the Twilight Zone is so good at. The last scene in which the newly arrived giants accidentally crushed Craig to death was surprisingly gruesome. It wasn't bloody or violent, it was more in the way the giant alien carelessly tosses his body aside after realising he accidentally crushed him to death. The sight of Craig's body landing on the ground among stones and rocks was brutal, at least for 60s television. As far as the acting, Claude Aiken shines as the practical and wholesome leader of the duo Fletcher. Joe Maras was fine as Craig, he came across as suitably unlikable from the get-go, but he really wasn't anything spectacular. The scene of him rolling around on the floor laughing maniacally came across as a bit forced. This time there is no escaping the fact that this is a clear-cut commentary on racism, and more particularly colonialism. If it wasn't for Claude Aiken's earnest betrayal, this might have come across as too heavy-handed. At the end, he seemed to really feel bad for Craig. He pitied him. Such sympathy is not usually afforded to a tyrannical character, and Craig clearly didn't deserve it. But it shows Fletcher's humanity, and makes it so that the episode is not too much on the nose. Anyway, keep up the great work and can't wait to see you in Binghamton. And that's from Rob. Well, I can't wait to see you either, Rob. You know, I'm really looking forward to it. There's been a few people saying they're coming along, so it's going to be great to meet you all. So great thoughts on the little people there, and thank you for writing in. Friend of the show Jim wrote in and he said, Hello Tom, I'm continuing to enjoy your podcast. There are new thoughts and insights with every new episode. 
Something jogged my memory as I was listening to your show about the Twilight Zone stage production there in London. Back in the mid-1980s, we were living in Southern California, just south of Santa Barbara. I had gone to a local art supply framing shop to make a purchase. As I was standing in the queue to pay, I glanced at the man in front of me. It was Lee Van Cleef. We made eye contact and I got up my nerve to say hello to him. I commented that I really enjoyed the work he had done on film, and I added that my favourite role of his was, and I paused, and said it was his appearance on The Twilight Zone in the episode The Grave, Season 3. I think he may have been expecting me to mention one of his movies, Escape from New York or some such thing, so he seemed a bit surprised that this relatively young guy would know that performance. However, he grinned and said that it was a great show to work on, and that he thoroughly enjoyed being part of it. Turns out we lived in the same town. He died just a couple of years after this encounter. Just passing the memory along, keep up the great work, all the best. Jim. What a great little memory, Jim. You know, I, I can really see that though. You know, sometimes, and I've interviewed quite a few actors and so on uh, in the past, not just on the Twilight Zone podcast, Clearly when I interview someone on the Twilight Zone podcast, it's going to be about the Twilight Zone. But often when you speak to actors and so on, they really appreciate when you bring up something beyond their most famous work. You know, probably most people used to go over to Lee Van Cleef and mention The Good, The Bad and The Ugly, Escape from New York, like you said. So to mention the Twilight Zone, I, I really could imagine he appreciated that and it's something... And it's something that I always tried to do when I was interviewing people, you know, find those little gems that maybe they don't get to talk about so much because it saves them having to just recount the same stories that they've done a million times. So, so good stuff, Jim. Thanks for, thanks for passing that along for us all to enjoy. Okay, I've had an email from a long-time friend of the show, but one who has not necessarily written in before. It's from Jeff, and he says... This email has been a long time coming. I've been an avid listener and fan since early on in season one, but never dropped you an email to tell you how great of a job you've done with this love letter to my favourite show. For some reason or another, I always kept putting it off and saying to myself, I'll send one out for the next episode, but as the years have gone on, I never have. So Jeff goes on, What prompted me to finally drop you a line was your recent podcast about the Twilight Zone play at the Ambassador's Theatre in the West End of London. I live in Berkeley, California, and I remember hearing about the first run of the play over a year ago, and how disappointing that it was that it never made its way over to the States. I was really grateful that you spoke about it and got a lot out of your review. My girlfriend recently had a conference in Paris and had me tag along, and while we were across the pond, we decided to take a trip up to London and we were lucky enough to catch a performance of the Twilight Zone play while we were here, and we had a great time with it. I'm not sure if I would have heard about the West End production if it hadn't been for you and the podcast, so many thanks for that. What I really enjoyed about the theatrical show was the level and care and detail that went into it. The costumes and set design were all first rate, and we particularly liked the scene transitions and stage lighting to give it an otherworldly effect, and it definitely gave the audience the feeling of being immersed in a beautiful, almost black and white world. For me, the first musical number worked better than the second one, but I applaud their attempt at something weird and surreal. It was a much more satisfying time for me than just seeing a straight adaption of a few episodes. The transition from screen to stage was handled in a fun, odd way, that evoked the late 50s and early 60s sci-fi cookiness that the Twilight Zone sometimes evoked. And if it ever makes its way over to the west coast of the US, we would definitely take another trip into the fifth dimension. Anyway, I've rambled long enough. Hopefully, I won't wait too long before I check in again with you and actually can comment on an actual episode. I just wanted to say thank you for this obvious labour of love and keep up the great work. And in my opinion, your Planet of the Apes episode should win you this year's Rondo for that alone. Amazing stuff. Cheers, Jeff. 
Well, thank you, Jeff. You know, I'm so glad you got to see the stage show. Like I said, when I spoke to Ron Fogelman, the producer, it's one of those times when England has got a Twilight Zone thing, event, whatever it is, before the US. But I really do hope that it goes to the US so we can all kind of share in it and enjoy it and it then becomes uh, for everyone. But, you know, the fact that you got over to see it, and I'm sure a lot of other American uh, fans of the show have as well, as Ron said, it is great. So thanks for writing in, man. I really appreciate it. Okay, so those are our listener emails. Now, if you want to get your thoughts onto the show, then the email address is Tom thetwilightzonepodcast.com If you have any thoughts about the next episode maybe just keep hold of them for now because as you know we are coming into the time of the new Twilight Zone show and I'll talk about that in a moment but in the meantime I just want to thank the following people I want to say thank you to a whole slew of people who've signed up to the Patreon and are supporting the show in that way and getting some extra content most notably, like I said, I'm recording those episodes that I missed in 2014 over there. So I want to thank Hope Morgan, who did a very generous donation. And as I've said in the past, if people donate, then they're sponsoring an episode of the Twilight Zone podcast. And your episode, Hope, is the Super Bowl trailer discussion for the new series. So thank you so much for becoming a patron. Monica Michelle Hall, and she has become the sponsor of 22, Room for One More. Thank you, Monica. Uh, Brian Lund, he sponsors The Arrival. Thank you, Brian, appreciate it, man. Oscar Mitt, he he sponsors The Grave. We mentioned Lee Van Cleef before, and he was in that, so thank you, Oscar, appreciate it. Uh, Laura Pina, and her episode is The Midnight Sun. So thank you, Laura. Uh, Willow Katz. Now, Willow has been a friend of the show for a long time, and like I said, different people show their support in different ways, and Willow always has a kind word here and there on the episode, so that's always appreciated, Willow, and uh, I hope you appreciate the episode that you're sponsoring, and that was the review of Twilight Zone The Play 2019 that came out a week or so ago. So thank you, Willow, I appreciate it. Uh, Jonathan Melville, your episode is Mr. Dingle the Strong. Now, Jonathan is a writer of some note, and he once interviewed Joe Dante and name-checked the Twilight Zone podcast to Joe Dante, which I was kind of blown away by. So thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate it, man. Next up, we have Anthony Chapman. And Anthony, your episode is the review of Twilight Zone the game. Now, that game was awful, but... Please don't let that put you off staying as a patron for now at least because sometimes people need to have the word out that something is awful and the episode that you're sponsoring will serve as that warning. It's the lighthouse on the rocks stopping people crashing into it with their boats. So thank you Anthony, appreciate it. Jeremiah Teniente, I hope I've said your name right. You sponsor part one of that epic conversation with Arlen Schumer and it was an epic conversation and I thank you for sponsoring it. Appreciate it, Jeremiah. And then new patron Gary Bastable, you sponsor part two of that epic conversation, and I thank you for that. You know, it's a conversation so epic that it took two people to sponsor it, so thank you, guys. Next up, we have Greg Fosty, and Greg, your episode is the trailer review in the Road to the Twilight Zone 2019 series. So it'll be interesting to see when we're at the other side of Twilight Zone 2019, how that review holds up. And thankfully, you're holding it up for us by sponsoring it. So thank you, Greg. Next up, we have Spencer Clayweg, and you sponsor my conversation with Barbie Wilde. Bit of a different one, that one, but I've had some nice uh, comments about it. A very interesting lady and and a good friend. So thank you for sponsoring that, Spencer. And another friend of the show, Edwin Camarina, sponsors the interview with Ron Fogelman, the producer of Twilight Zone The Play. So thank you for coming on board, Edwin. You know, he only just wrote to me recently saying he'd, uh, you know, discovered the show and enjoyed it, and he jumped right on in support. So thank you, man. I appreciate it. So that is our episode for now. And like I said, we are on the cusp of Twilight Zone 2019. 
Whether I get another episode out before that, I don't know. I will start work on it straight away. And you know, if there's not much trivia about it, if it's quite straightforward, you know, sometimes it falls like that and it can be like a 20 or 30 minute episode and it's not as much work. So maybe it'll be one of those, I don't know, but I will start work on it. Now, if I don't get it done, then I will release an episode prior to, kind of like a prelude to Twilight Zone 2019. Now, here's the thing. It's all well and good, me sitting here and reviewing these episodes for you. And I'm going to be bringing on a, a selection of my friends who I've done podcasts with uh, at different times. But one of the best things about this show is the interaction with you, big or small. And I want you to have a platform too to speak about Twilight Zone 2019. And I won't go into the details about that now. But what I will do, if I don't get an episode out before it begins on the 1st of April, I will do a short update episode where I lay it out what you need to do if you want to get your thoughts onto the show about Twilight Zone 2019. Now, because it's going to be weekly, there will be quite short timescales involved in that. For example, the show debuts on Monday the 1st of April, so to get a show together of listener opinions, I'm going to need that in probably a day or two after that actually going out. So I'll put those details in a short update podcast before Twilight Zone 2019 begins. But just on the off chance that I do get another episode out, let's go over to Rod Serling to find out what's coming up next. And now, Mr. Serling. Next week, an exceptionally fine actor named Theodore Bikel portrays a misguided kook who fancies himself some kind of guardian of law and order. He decides that it's his mission in life to eradicate evil the world over. Now, this one is told very far out, but considering the nature of the times, it happens to be very close in. Next week, an exercise in insanity. It's called 4 o'clock. Set your watches and come on in. You know, it's only a short hop from the Twilight Zone to Dodge City and Gunsmoke. Saturday nights over most of these stations. <laughs> 